This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Many of our top local magazines perished early in the COVID-19 crisis when their offshore publisher pulled the plug and others ceased printing when delivery was banned under the Level 4 rules. But New Zealand Geographic has re-emerged with a bold new issue taking stock of what's happened to New Zealand lately and what might happen next. Editor Rebecca White tells Media Watch this week, it's a crying shame though that hers is the only magazine in the market right now that's covering our big national issues. Terrible. That's that's horrible for a country like New Zealand. We deserve more outlets than simply us providing you, the readership, with different ways of understanding what's happening to us. Also this week we look at why one broadcaster is facing claims of racism for his handling of the controversial issue of iwi-run roadside checkpoints. Sean, the way I see it with the iwis, it's only their own backyard they are crapping in. Yeah, that's true. But first, with Monday's decision on Level 2 looming, some in our media are pushing hard to loosen the lockdown, claiming it's killing jobs now and could even kill more Kiwis in the future. And I guess my final important message is to thank uh, all of you, as I have before in the media, for the important role you have played over the last three months in supporting our collective efforts to keep the public informed, to ask the important questions and the hard questions and to um, ensure that we are um, being held to account for answering those. Thank you very much, and I'm open now to further questions. That was the now familiar voice of Dr Ashley Bloomfield, the Director General of Health, with some unfamiliar praise for the media, and that was a nice gesture from him for the members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. They've been copping flack lately for their questioning of him during those daily televised press conferences, but the political reporters have also been accused of failing to push Dr Bloomfield hard on the health system's performance under pressure or decisions on moving between the restrictive alert levels. But they were certainly making things uncomfortable for Dr Bloomfield this past week and for the Prime Minister and the government. Yeah, this is the first time um, an Attorney-General's been summoned before a committee like this. Uh, he'll be a Solicitor-General, sorry. Uh, and uh, he'll be there with the Director-General of Health and the Police Commissioner because uh, what the uh, opposition wants to know is what legal advice did they get about this lockdown. And it goes back to those um, leaked papers that I uh, had from the police uh, last weekend. That was Barry Soper, political editor of News Talk ZB, on its drive show last Wednesday. And while he was at it, Barry Soper also said he was personally aggrieved about people being denied the chance to see dying and critically ill relatives, especially after the Prime Minister said on Tuesday that permission had been granted to 18 people when that wasn't so. Barry Soper also said the health system at a standstill would inevitably mean more deaths here than COVID-19 would claim. And that followed the Cancer Society's Dr Chris Jackson telling the Epidemic Response Committee this last Wednesday. The health system must now catch up or people will face delayed diagnosis and lives will be lost. And as the media followed up on that, Dr Bloomfield was also grilled this week about infected staff at Waitakere Hospital and News Hub's Michael Morrow revealed this week that staff there had complained fruitlessly about what they saw as unsafe rostering. And then, on Friday, 
After the government released a pile of official documents about its national COVID-19 response, NewsHub's political editor Tova O'Brien reacted like this on NewsHub at 6. One thing that's not in this pile of documents is an email that was leaked to NewsHub from the Prime Minister's office to all of her ministers, gagging them from speaking to the media. It says they're only allowed to provide brief written responses to the media, that the Prime Minister would have to approve and sign all of those off. It provides specific talking points to keep her ministers on message. And get this, it even says there is no need to defend the COVID response. Instead, quote, we can dismiss and, quote, do not put ministers up for interviews on this. So plenty of examples then this past week of the media giving the government a rough ride. But at that briefing last Monday, political reporters were able to pass on the good news from Dr Bloomfield. No new cases for the first time since we were on the other side of the curve seven weeks ago. But Dr Bloomfield also wanted to get this message out to the public via the media. Uh, we won't know if there, will, if there are other cases out there that might spring up. So I think um, it's, it's the right um, position currently to keep everybody under the, the level three. And Dr Bloomfield wasn't the only expert in the media this past week urging us to stay the course at level three for now. A leading infectious diseases expert says we need to stay under alert level three for a few more weeks. Otago University Professor Michael Baker says we can beat COVID-19 if people stick to the rules. And then we're freed of all of the illness and death that we know comes with this pandemic. That was the AM show's news bulletin earlier on Monday. But the show's host, Duncan Garner, was no Level 3 enthusiast. I don't think Level 3 is working. Here's why. I think it might actually be worse than 4 because we had expectations of freedom. Uh, and no one really knows what they can do until they're pinged for it. So, so welcome to no man's land. I think it's worse for the economy. He went on to urge the Prime Minister to throw out the entire alert level system. But when the Prime Minister popped up for her regular Monday morning interview on the AM show, she challenged Duncan Garner's qualifications to make that call. I didn't, what are we waiting I for? I didn't realise you were an epidemiologist. Congratulations on your new qualifications, if you Duncan. Want to get personal, that's um, fine, but I'm just I'm asking the question. However, Duncan Garner did have one expert in his corner on his show that morning. Um, I'm on board with this um, position. Joining us now to explain is Auckland University Professor of Medicine, Des Gorman. Des, um, it's going to be like this, so what's the point of this alert level system now? Oh, it's a very good question. I think we're going to be like this for 18 months at least. Like Duncan Garner, the University of Auckland's occupational medicine specialist, Professor Des Gorman, also reckoned there was no point remaining at Level 3 any longer. As we wait, we are incurring not just economic damage, not just a growing uh, insult to our economy. We are generating uh, financial hardship and we're generating unemployment, Duncan, which is going to cause a far greater health burden than anything this virus has caused in terms of our epidemic. Professor Gorman said he spoke as a clinician, not an epidemiologist, but he insisted that this was not just his opinion. This is not soft science. This is hard science. The hard science is that unemployment is directly linked to ill health and and in fact, a little while ago, the College of Physicians, of which I'm a fellow, we had to put out a, a notice to our members, please stop putting people off work, you're harming their health. Unemployment is very bad for your health, and we're actually creating a much bigger problem than one we're trying to fix. Now that argument that the economic damage of the lockdown, and specifically unemployment, could cause more health problems than the actual virus, has been running for a while now, tied to the push to get more businesses up and running again. 
Professor Gorman was also on Nine to Noon on RNZ National last Thursday, saying that the focus should now be on setting rules for businesses to operate safely based on what we now know about coronavirus, rather than schedules of prohibitions attached to the official alert levels. So the dissenting views then are out there in our media. But on Monday, the AM show co-host Mark Richardson leapt in with this. Uh, Des Gorman, 24 past six. Yeah, could we perhaps stop using social media as a social barometer? Because it's not. It's social media is not an accurate snapshot... That's opinion-based. ...of, of the majority's opinion. That very morning, the AM show itself was polling its audience on social media on the crucial question, when should we move to level two? Interestingly, more than three quarters of the respondents chose either next week as planned or they said they favoured extending level three even further. Less than a quarter said we should move to level two right now, in spite of the show's host Duncan Garner insisting that not doing so will cost lives later on. Find ways, Prime Minister, to allow New Zealand businesses, for goodness sake, let's get on with this. Our approach is now turning a whole new kind of deadly. It's killing Kiwi jobs, killing Kiwi businesses, and that too is a genuine and serious risk. But when the AM show's Duncan Garner asked Professor Des Gorman about that on Monday, he put it this way. Managing of pandemics is very hard, of course, but where we've seen it overmanaged, perhaps um, too zealously, and where people have lost jobs and there have been you know, community sickness like suicide, which we have uh, too high rates anyway. Have we seen it before? Yes, look, it's a very well-recognised pattern that after any uh, catastrophic event or any major event or any event which threatens people's well-being, there is a subsequent spike in health problems, and not just mental health problems, Duncan, the physical health problems too. Put simply, financial hardship and unemployment is very bad for your health in generic terms. Now, Dr Gorman's answer in generic terms sidestepped Duncan Garner's inference there that the economic fallout from the extended coronavirus lockdown would cause a spike in suicides. And that was a live issue in the media last weekend when claims that it already had were made online, citing a police source. Now, these rumours were then circulated to thousands of people before being debunked. Media Watch's Hayden Donnell looked at how that happened and the worrying speed with which that misinformation was spread. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. But while mainstream media creditably didn't report that rogue claim as news last weekend, it did report the reaction on Monday. Over the weekend, rumours were flying across social media that suicide rates have increased over lockdown. Well, the rumours were met with a strongly worded statement from the Mental Health Foundation that there is no truth to that rumour and that is irresponsible, dangerous and untrue. That was TVNZ's breakfast show. And not only were those claims inaccurate, according to the Mental Health Foundation's Sean Robinson, they were also irresponsible because those rumours and their accompanying commentary, he said, imply that suicide is an expected response to COVID-19. But back on the 17th of April, a stuff story claimed suicide would rise significantly after COVID-19, according to a new report by Sir Peter Gluckman's Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland. The centre's slogan is, in evidence we trust, so that is a worrying claim. But the centre's report didn't actually say that. It said more people may suffer a form of PTSD as the recession deepens in the future, and as a result, incidences of acting out, depression, anxiety and suicidality would grow as well, according to the report, especially among younger people. But suicidality, which covers serious thoughts about suicide and other behaviours, is not the same thing as suicide. 
The centre's next paper, released last Monday, which is called He Oranga Ho, Social Cohesion in a Post-COVID World, said that those who never expected to be unemployed may exhibit even greater rates of suicidality and be less likely to get help. International research, such as in the UK's medical journal The Lancet recently, have also made the same warnings. But The Lancet explicitly said that it didn't mean a suicide surge was inevitable or even necessarily more likely. Now, when those rumours hit social media last weekend, the Deputy Director-General of Mental Health, Robin Shearer, and the Director of the Suicide Prevention Office, Kala Nagara, issued a joint statement that said, It is not inevitable there will be a significant increase in serious mental health issues or suicides. Data from previous international crises, they said, have shown they might even decrease. It's vital we focus on preserving life rather than speculating about the likelihood of ending it, they concluded. And they could have added that suicide speculation shouldn't be used as a tool by media hosts here seeking to influence our political leaders' choices in a crisis and telling the public those decisions will be deadly. As we've heard here on Media Watch in recent weeks, the COVID-19 economic fallout has hit the media hard, and the first and biggest casualty so far has been magazines and the people who made them for our biggest publisher, Bauer Media. Soon after the March 25th lockdown, it suddenly closed all its titles, including The Listener and Metro and North and South. And on Friday, Kelly Bertrand, the former deputy editor of another one, the New Zealand Woman's Weekly, told RNZ's Jessie Mulligan she hoped those magazines could be revived under new management soon. The, the, the weekly, the New Zealand Listener, they're taonga. They, I really hope that somebody does invest in those magazines. And even magazines like Next, who did incredible things for um, talking uh, about talking to women and talking uh, uh, really, really heightening that female conversation. They're incredible, incredible titles. When Bauer Media made its shock announcement last month, it cited the government's unexpected ruling that magazines were non-essential media, not to be distributed and printed under Alert Level 4, even to supermarkets and dairies where many are sold in normal times. And since then, two other publishers have also announced they'd stop printing some magazine titles and put the content online for subscribers instead. But the lifting of Level 4 on April the 28th was a huge relief to bi-monthly magazine New Zealand Geographic. Its next issue was due to be printed and posted the following day. Much of the issue is the kind of stuff its readers have come to expect and value, long pieces lavishly illustrated by professional photographers and designers. And New Zealand Geographic's not just about our flora and fauna these days, it's also about our country and us and our big issues. For example, in its 25th anniversary year back in 2017, it devoted each edition to one question facing the country, including such things as the impact of urbanisation, social problems and increasing waste. It also digitised its entire archive that year and made it free to schools and libraries, as well as its subscribers. And now, New Zealand Geographic finds itself the only magazine still covering current events for a national readership post-COVID-19, and the only one able to publish the kind of lean-back, long-view journalism that has extra relevance right now. For example, there's lots of noise in the media at the moment about whether and when to loosen the lockdown, and New Zealand Geographic's new issue has a timely article about that choice and the possible consequences. In it, the editor Rebecca White says we've simply wound the clock back to the virus's arrival when there were just a few cases of COVID-19 here and there. It's as though we've flipped back to page one of a choose-your-own-adventure story, she said. 
So this week, Hayden Donnell asked Rebecca White how she tackled the three possible endings to the story, another outbreak, containment, or elimination. The timing of the story, which was published just before the change over to level three happened, was was really great because the story shows what happens if we slack off, I suppose, in terms of social distancing and in terms of the contact that we have with other people. And one of the things that the story shows is how easy it would be for a second outbreak to take place. I guess the one that we're really scared of is uh, how another outbreak might take place. I give two examples of how an outbreak might take place, and those are drawn directly from um, my conversations with Sean Hendy, who's leading the modelling work at Te Punaha Matatini. The circumstances in which another outbreak might arise are if there's someone who is very far away from um, medical care, perhaps they are in a remote community that doesn't have um, a good amount of access, and if if they start getting sick and they've just gone back to work, um, there's a big trade-off to be made by that person in terms of whether they take time off a job that they may just have started again to try and access medical care, and if, um, if, if... if sickness isn't identified immediately, then that, that's your risk factor right there, is not uh, being able to identify sick people straight away as soon as they get sick. I think the example that you use is, is them visiting their courier on the way home from work. Exactly, because um, if you've picked up a virus, you don't know that you have it um, for a few days before you, you're infectious before you get sick, right? And so if you are in a situation where you haven't maybe taken the um, correct safety protocols, because after all it's alert level three, maybe everybody's chilling out a bit now, um, you are in a position where you could pick up the virus, you could pass it on without realising that you have it, um, before you even start getting a sore throat. So that's the the big risk factor right there. But I I don't expect most people to know how simple it would be for us to slide backwards, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in exactly how you put together a piece of writing like this. So you interviewed a lot of people and then just sort of synthesized, and news reports, right, and synthesized their words into this feature, which actually reads, it flows really well, and it doesn't doesn't even have really direct quotes that much. There aren't any of my reckons in it at all. It's all built on um, interviews with people. I went to around to economists and modelers and scientists and asked them what they thought would, was going to happen and, and where different scenarios would take us. And I built the story out of that reporting. And I, and I built it as a narrative because I personally find that I can't digest facts on their own. I need them to be in a story framework for me to be able to understand them. For the detail of the story, that's drawn from news reports from around the country since the lockdown started. I am indebted to um, the daily journalists working at papers like um, I remember there was um, a story from the Bay of Plenty Times that was published on the New Zealand Herald website that talked about um, pet, pet adoptions at the SPCA having tripled during the week before lockdown. That details in my story. I wouldn't be able to do it without having the... It sort of shows how the different forms of journalism work together because I've built something that didn't exist before, but some of the building blocks I've used are other journalists' um, daily reports. I think, I think you've described it as an example of the media ecosystem working well. Exactly. Um, there needs to be things at both ends. So you need the, um, if the, the type of, the daily news are, are these um, puzzle pieces and every day we're getting more pieces to the puzzle, but um, it's the long form journalists who can come and assemble all of those things and add a bunch of pieces of their own and suddenly you have a picture that you didn't see before. We are the people who zoom out and show you um, sort of what's been made out of everything over the last month, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely, and, or or bi-monthly, as, as you as you go. <laughs> or bi-monthly. <laughs> but uh, now we've focused a lot in the last, I mean, a long time, but in the last month in particular, on that first pieces of the puzzle, the news bit of, mm. and and how that's at threat. But actually, we haven't focused as much on the type of writing that you did here. This kind of synthesizing, this feature writing, uh, this assembling. Is is that at threat too? Yes. And so during Alert Level 4, the government decided that only daily media was essential. Anything that took that wasn't published every day or took longer wasn't. And I obviously disagree with that. I think that slower journalism isn't a worse form of journalism. It's, it's just a different form. Both are incredibly important, equally important, um, one might say. And... What's more, as we've seen from the lockdown, um, New Zealand Geographic is now the only current affairs magazine in New Zealand publishing. And that is terrible. That's that's horrible for a country like New Zealand. We deserve more outlets than simply us providing you, the readership, with different ways of understanding what's happening to us. And what's more, it means that for the journalists who specialise in this form of writing, which is really difficult... It's, it's its own discipline. It's not the same as daily news journalism at all. Um, there's only one place for them to practice their art. And so I'm worried about these, this type of journalism. People aren't going to be able to make a living from it. You think that this undervaluing of long-form, more considered journalism, it, it's, it's also continued over into stuff like the Epidemic Response Committee, right? Where there was no representatives from the magazine industry there. Not at all. So all um, forms of media were represented. There were people from community newspapers, from daily newspapers, from websites, from online-only sites such as the spin-off and Business Desk, um, from television, but um, nobody from magazines had been invited or the magazine industry body. We do have an industry body which represents um, all the magazines in New Zealand and um, we, we were not invited to the party. We didn't actually find out the party was happening until the night before, at which point... Um, we, we were told that there was uh, no no time for magazines to present. Why do you think this is? Do you think that magazine journalism is seen as kind of a nice to have rather than an actual vital part of the media e- ecosystem, as you say? There are um, concessions given to broadcasters and also to book publishers, and print journalism occupies the strange no man's land. I, and I would say it's print journalism rather than magazines in particular. We did get singled out um, in the Epidemic Response Committee, but since then the government's um, support package for journalism is um, largely directed at broadcasters, and there's, there's been no sort of signal from the government um, in terms of support for print. And it's it's a very unbalanced um, type of, of support from the government. It's almost as though they see print as being a non-viable business that um, should be allowed to let fail, whereas broadcast, um, which received subsidies before these these new subsidies, is, is sort of seen as, as viable, which, which doesn't make sense because magazines such as New Zealand Geographic are a, a perfectly viable business. Um, we are having a pretty difficult time at the moment because there's a global pandemic happening, but we were viable beforehand and will be viable after. And so it's a little bit strange to seemingly have the government thinking that we are not um, sort of part of that new world that I described in my story. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's just that, that maybe this print product and physical products are seen as archaic in the age of the internet, but actually you guys do pretty well. If you guys... Our readership is increasing. <laughs> yeah, right. So your, your readership is increasing. 
this is interesting. Every um, publisher has to pay some kind of cost to get their journalism to the public, right? So broadcasters pay uh, transmission fees, and then they um, and and publishers pay postage. Uh, both of those are state-owned enterprises. In the package that the government um, sort of provided to media, it uh, cut the transmission fees from its one state-owned enterprise. Um, but meanwhile, our postage costs have gone up. Um, they've gone up in double digits uh, year on year for the past few years, and so. It's strange to me that the government is price gouging in terms of its one entity and then increasing costs to a different type of publisher through another entity. I'm not entirely clear why those uh, costs are being treated differently and why you wouldn't sort of subsidise those costs across the board, considering that they are um, both state-owned enterprises. Before we go on to this, I just want to highlight something else, because your feature was illustrated by uh, really beautiful uh, photos by the former Herald photographer Brett Phibbs. Mm. And that's another part of this industry that is also kind of at risk, right? And the magazine industry, which Bauer has now folded, was supporting a lot of these guys. The closure of um, North and South and, and the listener and Metro, it means that New Zealand Geographic is the, um, as far as I know, the only outlet in New Zealand now commissioning documentary photography, which is where you have um, more than one picture to, to go with a story. And photography, to me, is such an important record of um, the way we live, and documentary photography in particular, because news photography is generally pictures of dramatic events or sort of famous things, whereas documentary photography is, it shows normal people in their normal lives, and it's it's beautiful, and it lends a, um, a dignity to those lives, it, it preserves them, it shows, um, it shows normality, and I honestly get worried about what we're going to have to look back on in 50 years and 100 years when we want to see how we lived. Photography is uh, legendarily not supported by Creative New Zealand. Um, documentary photography is considered not an art form. Um, that was the advice we received directly when, when um, photographers have tried to um, obtain grants. If, if you think that, I'd encourage you to, to look at the photos on this feature because they're, they're beautiful. Brett absolutely did a great job, and in this instance, we actually partnered with the New Zealand Herald to, um, it was, he worked for both them and New Zealand Geographic on documenting the lockdown. We only had one person um, who was uh, out and about during Alert Level 4 um, very carefully, and that was Brett, and to reduce that form of exposure, we, we shared him with, with the Herald with another media outlet. In some ways, magazines are what the future of media actually looks like. It's high-quality, subscription-based journalism. Uh, do you feel hopeful about the future of NZ Geographic and possibly other magazines? Absolutely. Uh, what we're seeing is that niche magazines that cater to a particular interest or audience um, have been doing... Uh, pretty well in that um, even in a country, a market as small as 5 million people, um, we are gen we're really interested in magazines. We, we've um, legendarily had a really high number of magazines per capita. The challenge that we face is not declining readership, it's declining advertising. So, and, and now at the moment, it's it's the, the wipeout of advertising. So we are probably 60% down on advertising uh, for this past issue and will be about 70% for the next one. And I think that there is a possibility for magazines to continue based on that subscriber support. In terms of support from the government, I think there's some very 
quick wins that could be made. For instance, in um, providing a subsidy on postage would be uh, one incredible change that would make a difference. The government owns New Zealand Post. It's the same as having um, transmission charges for broadcasters through another entity owned by the government. Lastly, do you still see yourself being in magazines in 20 or 30 years' time? Oh, I hope so. I love magazines. I really like being able to um, sit down and read a physical object, as um, many people still do, judging by the fact that our subscriber base um, isn't declining in the slightest. They offer a level of depth that isn't too great. It's not like sitting down to read a book where your time investment is significantly high but you're able to um, read a serious piece of analysis or journalism in half an hour or so rather than committing to a longer time it's to me i'm continually fascinated by what we're able to do within this sort of both picture and text form there's really nothing like it um and i i hope that i can keep working in it as 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 long as i can hey thank you so much for joining me thanks hayden that was Rebecca White, editor of New Zealand Geographic magazine, talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. And her article in its current issue, titled Our New Future, is online at nzgeo.com, or you can find a link to it in the online version of this story on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app. Just look for the title, Magazines, The Forgotten Media Crisis. One story that's fired up talkback radio in recent days was the operation of so-called iwi roadblocks, also described as community checkpoints, put in place around the country to keep people out of some regions where iwi leaders were worried about people bringing COVID-19 in with them. Some of these were set up with the approval of local police and local government, but they've prompted awkward questions for the government and the police about whether they're really legal, let alone desirable. And one talk radio host adamant that they weren't either of those things was Sean Plunkett on the Magic Talk radio station. This week, News Hub reported that community roadblocks in the eastern Bay of Plenty were turning people away unless they'd obtained a travel permit from local iwi Tafano Aapanui. On Wednesday, Sean Plunkett told one talkback caller this. I have been getting correspondence, multiple communications from people who live in that area who are scared, concerned and confused by those roadblocks. And on Monday, Sean Plunkett had spoken to Dr Hayden Reid from Tafano Aapanui. It's not your iwi's job to do that. Well, in conjunction with the police, it's... It, You're it not in conjunction job. with the police. The police are playing catch-up with you because they don't want a, uh, any political argy-bargy. The police have been here for weeks, and they've supported oh. us from day one. And the next day on Sean Plunkett's show, Louis Rapihana, who said he was the leader of Te Whanau COVID-19 response, told Sean Plunkett they'd created a permit system to manage the movement of people in businesses like forestry who were working on or passing through land leased to them by the iwi and to ensure that they were following Ministry of Health guidelines while they were there. We have actually been in this process a week before New Zealand made any decisions on what they were going to do around the national border. If the process is bullshit, that doesn't make a blind bit of difference, Louis. It isn't bullshit though, Sean. Sean Plunkett also told Louis Rapihana, who's also an Apotiki District Councillor, that he reckoned the volunteer checkpoints were breaching lockdown rules, not enhancing them. The bubble was created around the entire all here to ensure that every... So what, can you name all the people in your bubble, Louis? How many are there? There is 1,100 people here. In a bubble? 
in the bubble. Wow, I'd on love to live that, in a bubble of 100, 1,000 people because I'm living in a bubble of one person at the moment. And geez, and I guess if I, if I could claim my treaty rights, I could set up a 1,000-person bubble. Except I Absolutely. wouldn't do that because that would be stupid and it would put people's lives at risk. Throughout the 18-minute interview, Louis Rapihana remained unruffled even when what he called community safety zones were labelled as silly and bullshit and the people operating them were described like this. You sound like a bunch of bullies, actually. You sound like a bunch of rogues and highwaymen. But Sean Plunkett's final question to Louis Rapihana on Wednesday was not about any of that. I want to ask you, have you ever considered this sort of uh, major action or checkpoint or intervention on an issue like, say, child abuse amongst your population? Quite how roadblocks might help prevent any child abuse in the area wasn't clear, and that question echoed the final one in another interview of Sean Plunkett's about roadside checkpoints back in early April. We're in a state of national emergency, and you doing this well, encourages okay, other people Sean, not to do what Sean. they should. Back then it was Te Tai Tokaro border control on the main roads in Northland that was in the news, led by prominent politician Hone Harawera, and Sean Plunkett wound up that interview with him like this. Other question, Hone, um, real fears and already some suggestions that domestic violence is going up. If you're so concerned about your community, what are you doing about that? Well, actually, that's a, that's a worry. That's always a worry, um, even before the scare. Hone Harawera was happy to tell Sean Plunkett about community initiatives dealing with that. But what do COVID checkpoints have to do with domestic violence in Te Tai Tokoro? Likewise, the question about child abuse that was put to Louis Rapihana last Wednesday. Sean Plunkett didn't say there was child abuse going on in Te Whanua Apanui's community or that iwi leaders there didn't care about the issue. But while that interview ended amicably, some who heard that question about child abuse considered it racist. Former MP Tohanare, for example, accused Sean Plunkett of racism on social media, while others said they'll make formal complaints about the broadcast to Magic Talk's own media works, citing the Broadcasting Standards Authority's radio code provisions on denigration and discrimination. Considering complaints about this in the past, the BSA has stressed that to safeguard the freedom of expression, the bar is set pretty high on this. Often an element of malice or nastiness will be necessary, says the BSA, to conclude that a broadcast is in contravention of the standard. After the ad break that followed last Wednesday, Sean Plunkett read out some of the texts coming in from the listeners, like this one. Sean, the way I see it with the Ewes, it's only their own backyard they are crapping in. Yeah, that's true. And there were a few more texts where that came from. But the first caller up after that, though, didn't want to talk about checkpoints at all. He wanted to discuss Tasmania as a possible first post-COVID overseas destination for New Zealanders. But in doing so, Sean Plunkett brought up those checkpoints once again like this. About four hours ago, right round pretty much Tasmania, but a lot of history, uh, they shoved all the well, they put all the uh, Aboriginals off Tasmania and sent them onto Kings Island and Flinders Island many, many moons ago, and that's the whole reason why there's not many Aboriginals down there. Ah, uh, okay, so a bit there's of a depopulation problem. Yeah. They'd but never no, have any show. checkpoint problems there, would they, Pat? <laughs> <laughs> and some listeners probably didn't find that gag based on the colonial-era killing and ejection of Tasmania's Aboriginal Australians as funny as caller Pat did there. And Sean Plunkett's strident stance on the iwi checkpoints struck a chord with the next caller up on Magic Talk, Wayne. Maori leaders, role models, Kamata or whatever, also get to say stuff 
um, in, in the public arena that wouldn't be acceptable from other people. So we have one yeah. particular group calling the shots. That's the problem. Well, see, Wayne, I think you've made your points very, very well. Well, clearly it's not them calling the shots on Talkback Radio, where callers and hosts, it seems, still have ample opportunity to say stuff about Māori people and Māori issues in a way that many other people would find unacceptable. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but Hayden Donnell will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night during Nights with Brian Crump, and we'll be back with more Media Watch for you at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.